This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. The DOJ is moving aggressively in the secret criminal grand jury proceedings in Washington, D.C. to compel testimony of former top Trump White House officials over the executive privilege objections of Trump. And the DOJ is winning. News organizations have filed motions to unseal some of those grand jury records. Will we get to see the filings and the rulings? Meanwhile, Kelly Ward in Arizona and Lindsey Graham in Georgia both file emergency applications with the United States Supreme Court to block their testimony about the insurrection and different proceedings. Our predictions. Mark Meadows is ordered to testify by a South Carolina state court before the Fulton County criminal grand jury in Georgia investigating election interference. And we've got updates on the special master proceedings in the Mar-a-Lago stolen document case and Trump criminal stooge Cash Patel pleads the Fifth Amendment apparently in the grand jury proceeding in Washington, D.C. on the stolen document case. And we also got January 6th insurrectionist convictions and sentencing updates all taking place in the Washington, D.C. federal courthouse as well. I'm Ben Micellis, joined by Michael Popak. This is Legal AF, the most consequential legal news of the week. Michael Popak, how are you doing today? I'm, do- I'm doing great. And we're going to be focused on two action heroes in the forums of judges. We're going to talk about Judge Chief Judge Beryl Howell of the D.C. Circuit Court. And we're going to talk about... Um, uh, Amy Berman Jackson and everything that she's all about. These are superstars. We're fortunate to have them and we're going to weave them throughout our podcast today. It's good to hear about judges who are truly law and order. You know, you set aside all of the politics who are following the law. The January 6th insurrection is a date that will live in infamy. And judges who don't mince words about what that date is, what a disgusting, despicable, and criminal act it was for those who participated in it, and saying it in clear and certain terms is really, really important for our democracy. And so let's get into it right away. There's multiple criminal grand juries that are taking place in the Washington, D.C. federal courthouse. You've got a grand jury that is investigating uh, January 6th insurrection uh, related activity and a flurry of subpoenas are coming out of that grand jury. You've got another secret grand jury investigating Donald Trump's crimes of stealing top secret, sensitive, compartmented records, you know, and you walk down that hallway in that federal courthouse in Washington, D.C., and on any given day, 
You have an Oath Keeper seditious conspiracy trial. In another courthouse, you'll have a Proud Boy pleading guilty to seditious conspiracy. You go down, you see Cash Patel walking out of one of the secret grand juries, allegedly taking the Fifth Amendment. You go further, you see former Vice President Pence's former Chief of Staff, Mark Short, or his former General Counsel, Greg Jacob, leaving and have after they've testified before one of these secret grand juries. So a ton of activity taking place. But, you know, one of the things that I think people are frustrated about regarding the DOJ's processes, but this is just the way it works, which is why it's so important when we explain it here, uh, on Legal AF is that, look, the January 6th committee is a public committee. They do their work and their hearings are done in public and they prepare a public report. Uh, grand juries pre-indictment are done in secret. If you all were to be able to see these proceedings that were taking place and are taking place in these grand juries, I think that there would be some different perspectives as well for some people who go, well, what's the Department of Justice doing? Because, because these processes are indeed kept secret, we don't have the full body of information of what's taking place. So we have to rely on leaks of what's going on and you know, looking at the docket, even though these documents are filed under seal, but maybe you could take a glimpse of like what the title is and try to figure out based on the dates and who's coming in and out of court. But kind of piecing the puzzle together, Popak, what we have learned is that there was this first wave of testimony in the January 6th criminal grand jury investigating the crimes that were committed leading to January 6th, on January 6th, fake electors, insurrection-related conduct, uh, all of that. You know, some testimony of top White House officials uh, back, or former White House officials in the Trump administration, back in July. You know, when we talked about it here on Legal AF, and the way we knew it is we saw the people leaving the courthouse. So you'd see people like Pat Cipollone and Patrick Feldman, you know, the top White House counsel, uh, former White House counsel under Trump. You'd see people like Mark Short, the former chief of staff to former Vice President Pence, or Greg Jacob, the former general counsel to former Vice President Pence, leaving. Um, but now what we're learning is that they weren't able to fully testify during their first wave of testimony. And that's because Trump had asserted the executive privilege. And while all of those people I just mentioned actually wanted to be cooperating witness. And they said that they were willing to testify on these subjects. What they didn't want to do is they said, look, you know, you have Trump asserting this executive privilege. If you go and get a court order that requires us to testify and states that the executive privilege does not apply, we're ready to testify on all of those items. And you may recall watching this at home as well. Like when you saw Pat Cipollone and Short and some of these other people in the January 6th committee, remember they weren't able to answer all of the questions. And because the January 6th committee wanted to move as expeditiously as possible, the January 6th committee kind of accepted that there were certain topics that they couldn't uh, get answers for, even though everybody believed that the executive privilege assertion was a frivolous assertion to be made at this case. But nonetheless, 
uh, these individuals who all have law backgrounds said, look, the, the Trump is the privilege holder. It is likely a frivolous privilege claim, but we have to abide by it based on our legal obligations until a judge basically sets us free and lets us testify on it. So these individuals testified first in front of these grand juries and weren't able to speak to the executive privilege issues for the reasons I just discussed. But then what we learned is that we saw Mark Short, the former chief of staff to former Pence, show up in October 13th to testify. And we learned that right around, I think, September 28th, the chief judge who oversees these grand jury proceedings, Beryl Howell is her name, um, she made a very important ruling that executive privilege uh, does not apply here. Trump tried to appeal it in the last minute on like October 12th, October 11th. Uh, that appeal was rejected to stop the testimony from taking place uh, of Mark Short and I think Greg Jacobs as well. Um, and they were permitted to testify. And so now, Popak, I want you to speak to it too, how big this is, but the Department of Justice is now seeking similarly, now that there's already a finding that executive privilege for various reasons didn't apply to Short and to Jacob, the Department of Justice saying, yeah, it also doesn't apply to Pat Cipollone. It doesn't apply to Pat Feldman, these former top White House counsels. And I think they're going to win. And that's where we are right now. The DOJ moving aggressively. What do you think? Why is executive privilege even being asserted? How is it being uh, overruled here, Michael? Yeah. Thanks, Ben. So let's start with uh, Chief Judge Beryl Howell, right person for the job right person for democracy and, uh, and where we sit at the intersection of law and politics. Illustrious career, bipartisan career appointed by George W. Bush to the U.S. Sentencing Commission, appointed to her current job by Obama, former assistant U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of New York, where she was the chief of the narcotics unit. But more importantly, for 10 years was the chief counsel to Patrick Leahy, then Senator Leahy, who was the chairman of the US, of the Senate Judiciary Committee. So she was the general counsel for the Judiciary Committee. She's also considered to be one of the authors and architects of the Freedom of Information Act, what we call FOIA requests, and how documents end up in the public. Um, so she's got a very strong background in that. She also um, was involved with rulings related to the Mueller investigation and the House committee that was formed there and turning over all the information from the Mueller investigation to the House committee. So very strong in all the areas that we want her to be strong. And as you said earlier, why is it in front of her? Because as the chief judge, everything that relates to a grand jury, which is conducted in secret, goes to her and her court for ultimate decision, anything that touches a grand jury. And it, and it initially, and generally stays secret even in her courtroom. As you said, there were entries on dockets, on court dockets, public filings, that indicated that she made a ruling, but the ruling is sealed. So the public and the media can't get, can't, can't get access to it. Hearings in her courtroom, her particular courtroom when she's wearing the hat of supervising the grand jury and all things related to it, they are private. The public is not invited. There's no public Zoom or phone-in number. The media is not present. It's all private. Politico and the New York Times both brought First Amendment applications to have whatever she ruled 
which we can piece together from the puzzle, whatever she ruled in favor of the Department of Justice's position, that people like Mark Short had to testify and his assertion of attorney-client privilege or executive privilege was not going to hold because he ended up testifying, is all in her courtroom. She makes that final decision subject to a court of appeals above her, which is, seems to be in her favor as well, because they've already made a ruling related to Mark Short, we'll talk about in a minute, and then ultimately to the U.S. Supreme Court. The, the, the judge, the justice that sits over the D.C. Circuit, we've talked a lot about these judges, these justices having, um, they wear another hat when they supervise a circuit. The one that supervises this circuit is Chief Justice John Roberts. So ultimately, an application would have to go to Chief Justice John Roberts, and he'd have to make a decision about whether he's going to grant the stay or deny the stay or send it over to the full court for briefing. We know we can piece together from reporting that, as you mentioned, it looks like Mark Short, the chief of staff, and and, and Greg Jacob, counsel for Pence, who was very harsh in his assessment of the corruption of John Eastman on the process, um, have, have testified and will testify because... Chief Judge Beryl Howell says they will, and because she has resolved at the trial level initially the, the application of executive privilege and attorney-client privilege. The Department of Justice is moving aggressively in her courtroom, on all firing on all cylinders, to rip away the attorney-client privilege that Trump's lawyers are trying to assert. We know that Trump's lawyers, Evan Corcoran, James Trusty are going in and out of the courthouse on a regular basis. And her courtroom, which is courtroom 22A, for those that are nerds at home following where Beryl Howell presides, and arguing, we assume aggressively, that the, that the former president continues to maintain executive privilege and attorney-client privilege if they're lawyers over these people. Why is it important? Because the next up in the hit parade is Pat Cipollone and Pat Philbin, which were the two main lawyers in the White House, that advise the president. They are willing to testify if this issue, this legal issue, gets resolved one way or the other. They have already testified up to the water's edge to the Jan 6 committee. Pat Cipollone answered questions, but whenever it got to what did you tell the president and what did the president tell told tell told you, he stopped and he said, I can't reveal that attorney-client privilege. This is now going to get resolved in the crucible of Chief Judge Beryl Howell's courtroom. Every time for every grand jury that sits in D.C., it's going to go right to her courtroom. But she's made it clear she's not handling anything related to Eileen Cannon down in Florida and Mar-a-Lago. She made it clear that the grand jury that she's supervising and the issues that are related to it have nothing to do, at at least for now, about Mar-a-Lago. So we know we can, we can kind of strip that away from our piecing the puzzle together of what's happened here. We also know that the D.C. Court of Appeals, which sits above her and all the judges of the D.C. Circuit, have ruled against Trump again on an assertion of attorney-client or executive privilege. A three-judge panel unanimously found that the executive privilege would not stop Mark Short from testifying, and he's already gone in twice, we know, to, from, from court watchers into the grand jury. That panel because we're always talking about appellate panels, three-judge panels usually, and they are not the same three-judge panels for every issue. A new appeal, 
new could be a new three-judge panel. We're seeing that in Mar-a-Lago with the 11th Circuit. But this three-judge panel of Karen Henderson, Robert Wilkins, and Florence um, Florence Penn, who were one George W. Bush, one Obama, and one Biden appointee, again, consistently, as all the other courts have, have ruled against Donald Trump on the assertion of this privilege. And we've already predicted, Ben, you and me, that if it ever gets to the Supreme Court through Chief Justice Roberts, it's probably probably going to lose again, Trump. The other thing that's terrible news for Trump and great news for democracy in our show <laughs> is that, and I, I don't know if you, I'm, so, I'm sure you caught this, the Department of Justice has added another rock star prosecutor to the team in Mar-a-Lago. We're going to talk about Mar-a-Lago next. And that prosecutor is considered to be one of the most formidable prosecutors around. Um, and he, he had done terror, anti-terrorism prosecution starting with 9-11, with all the way through a recent prosecution of an FBI special analyst sitting in Kansas City who, who she took home 385 classified documents, and she's going to jail as a result. The addition of that special prosecutor, we'll talk about it more when we get to the Mar-a-Lago issue, is a terrible sign for Donald Trump and may, may indicate that we are inching closer to an indictment of Donald Trump. Well, let's not bury the lead there, Popak, because we're on the topic. It's our show. We can go in any order that we want to go. So we've talked about this one grand jury, this uh, secret grand jury investigating the January uh, 6th insurrection related crimes. There is also another secret grand jury that is impaneled, that is issuing subpoenas and is investigating the crimes relating to Donald Trump's stealing thousands and thousands of government records, including top secret, sensitive, compartmented information, our nation's highest secrets. Let's talk about that, Popak. The one thing I do want to mention, though, is just to put a nice bow on the executive privilege issues being litigated before the January 6th uh, secret grand jury. You know, to all the people who were like, I really want Merrick Garland to have initiated the prosecution of Trump on that, you know, earlier. Popak, don't you think it would be prosecutorial malpractice if you were to initiate a criminal prosecution without at least fighting for the testimony of these other witnesses and without all of the steps that were taken to get to the point where there's a reason the Department of Justice is winning these motions now, and it's because they didn't shoot from the hip. And they've developed a whole body of evidence over the period of time that they've been doing work. And I truly believe if the Department of Justice initiated criminal charges two or three weeks after the insurrection, first off, a defendant has a right to a speedy trial. And they don't have to go along with the, you know, delays that take place. If you don't want to as a criminal defendant, you can say put up or shut up your evidence now. And you have to get through, unfortunately, with someone who's like a recalitrant, obstructionist person like a Trump. You have to knock down all of these frivolous objections. That takes time. You got to gather the information. And any case that you're going to make is going to be far stronger once you have Cipollone and Short 
and Philbin and Jacob as people who could testify. Imagine lining those four witnesses up with no executive privilege and allowing them to testify. And then you can also say, well, why weren't they doing that earlier with those people? Well, to some extent, too, if you're looking at your chessboard and the January 6th committee is doing a good job in public hearings and you have all these other insurrectionists that you have to deal with also, we need justice for the other terrorists involved in this in this as well. You know, the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and the people who attack the police. And we'll talk about it later on the show, too. A police officer who tried to help an insurrectionist who was convicted of an obstruction crime and the low level people and all those people that the uh, Department of Justice has has secured convictions for. Popak, did you know yeah. that in yeah. criminal jury trials, this case against the police officer that helped the insurrections, which just took place, there was one count that was hung, 11-1 in favor of conviction, and then this officer was convicted on the other count of obstruction. And it was a, a tough case to prove that count that was 11-1 to 1 also. But that was the only count that was right. hung in any criminal jury trials by the department that's by the department of justice that's an impressive record yeah, so they're, they're they're like 10 and 0 and to your point where you said it earlier you framed it well earlier ben when you said different forums have different timetables and different protocols and different purposes and the jan 6 committee for obvious reasons because there's a very short shelf life for the jan 6 committee based on the midterms, potential midterms. They have to move with a velocity that is unparalleled and is not what you want your Department of Justice, and as you said, not exercising prosecutorial malpractice. You don't want them to be moving by the seat of their pants when they don't have to. That there is a midterm is completely irrelevant to the Department of Justice, because until there's a change or if there's a change in administration, they will work until the day of the next inauguration. They have the time on their side. Now, they don't. If what people thought the Department of Justice's purpose was, was to to bring the what you've always referred to as the apex or top level prosecutions in time for that to be revealed before the midterm and influence the midterm. But that was never your and my assumption of what the purpose of the Department of Justice is. Then we fall into the we fall into the hands of our of our opponents and their vocabulary that the Department of Justice has been weaponized. We know on this show that it has not been weaponized, that it's doing its job and it's doing it methodically. And this is not a, he acts like a penny ante burglar. He acts like a pickpocket on the subway, but this is Donald Trump and he is a former president. And if we don't, as a Department of Justice, have an airtight prosecution and investigatory body of work underneath it to support it, oh, won't we be kicking ourselves in the backside if something goes wrong at trial? That we didn't get, it's not even low-hanging fruit. Low-hanging fruit means it was easy to get. The things the Department of Justice is going after now is some of the most complicated, complicated issues of privilege, executive privilege, winding its way through multiple court systems. But if they're successful, if they're successful, and, we, and they are time and time again, 
What a home run for the Department of Justice to be able to strip away executive and attorney-client privilege from lawyers and let them speak about the most private and intimate conversations with a treasonous president of the United States. And as you as you framed it so properly, we would kick ourselves if we rush to judgment and rush the investigation and miss these opportunities. And you're right, under the Speedy Trial Act, which I think is about four months, he could force the Department of Justice to go to trial before they're ready. So this whole thing about, we want to see him in handcuffs, let's see him arrested, let's bide our time properly to build an airtight case so that if they make the decision to indict, they have a, they have a way to speak to the American public. When Merrick Garland takes that podium on that, on that day that we all hope, just as he did last week about the Chinese the Chinese who are trying to influence the election and all that stuff. When he takes the podium and says, for the first time in American history, for the first attorney general, that his office is indicting Donald Trump if that happens, he has to be able to look the American people in the eye and have credibility and have authenticity and have support, at least from thinking human beings, that he has done his job, that it's based on an evidential body of work that it's unassailable, at least from a prosecutorial standpoint. And woe be him if he doesn't. And then we we would be challenging him and saying, oh, he didn't get that testimony that he should have gotten. Why not? Why didn't he do that? And then there'd be all sorts of critics about how, how his prosecution is failing. Look what they've done. Look what the Department of Justice has done that you've been alluded to. They're like nine and oh. Yeah, put away the mistrial one count. It was, it was complicated about the Facebook messaging. We'll talk about that when we get to the segment. But they are like 9-0, and o, which they should be, based on the, on the evidence that they have developed in the prosecution that they've developed for over 800 people. And we have to have confidence in them and stop criticizing them and cannibalizing our democracy by, you know, it's okay to criticize. I'm all about the First Amendment. You don't like Merrick Garland, you're a Democrat, that's okay. You want to speak your piece, that's okay. But listen to the facts about what his office has done in less than two years and have confidence in his abilities to know right from wrong and what to do in a prosecution. I have that confidence in Merrick Garland based on a body of work over the last two years. So that's where we are. You want to talk about Mar-a-Lago? <laughs> I do. I want to share one story, though, about sure. the right to a speedy trial. So... My law partner, who uh, is a criminal defense lawyer, told me and has been criminal defense lawyer for uh, close to 40 years, uh, told me a story that in the 1980s in state courts uh, in Los Angeles, one of the things when uh, because of your right to speedy trial, you could waive your right to speedy trial and then you waive time when you're accused of crimes and then uh, the trial can be set significantly you know, further out. But what would happen was some of the gang members all came together and realized that you could have this speedy trial and that the prosecution would not be ready um, if you just said, hey, I'm ready for trial. And so what they did in a lot of these gang cases in the 80s, they would all say, hey, we're ready right now. Um, we're ready for trial. And then the prosecution would have to dismiss a lot of the cases because they were actually not prepared and didn't have the resources to question the witnesses. And that's what was taking place in the 80s. Um, and so yeah. you have to be careful. Same, you have to be careful. 
Same thing down in Miami with um, drug cases in the 80s and 90s in Miami. And there's a famous set of prosecutions of police officers who were corrupt in Miami in the 80s. It was known as the River Cops case, um, where they were on the take, unfortunately. And a lot of white-collar lawyers, defense lawyers down in Miami kind of um, made their bones on those cases. And a lot of them tried that technique, which was, uh, you know, first first arraignment, first appearance. And the defense stands up and says, ready. <laughs> and the prosecution's like, not ready. And so you're right. And and we can't do that with the pre- with the former guy. That's not the way to prosecute him if we want it to be successful. If all we're doing is show trials and all we're doing is perp walks and are we going to feel good for that day over our cup of coffee when we see him being... All right, then then go do that. But I didn't think that's what our party and this sh- this show and the teachings of the show was about. I thought it was about making prosecution stick, not about just I, having I, a perp walk to make us feel better. I agree. And talking about making prosecution stick, you alluded to this, Popak, the other grand jury, the grand jury in also same courthouse uh, that is investigating crimes relating to Donald Trump stealing government documents, including top secret, sensitive, compartmented information, right? This was the grand jury. Remember a subpoena issued in May of 2022 to Donald Trump asking for uh, additional records back after it became clear that the first batch of cherry picked records he gave after he was exposed for stealing these records back in January contained top secret records and other records, but that there was still documents missing. And then Trump's lawyer uh, or whatever she wants to call herself, custodian of records. Now, Christina Bob wrote the false declaration uh, stating that all of the documents were returned, which uh, they which they weren't. And so you may be saying, wait, there's a grand jury in D.C. I thought there's this thing going on in, in Florida. Like what what is going on here with all of these things? The criminal grand jury investigating Trump for obstruction crimes, espionage act, uh, concealment and mutilation that is taking place in a Washington, D.C. criminal grand jury because these are uh, government records. So that's why jurisdiction would be there. But Mar-a-Lago, the situs of where we at least know he was keeping a lot of the government records that he stole is in Florida within the jurisdiction of the Southern District of Florida, which is why you have to go to a magistrate judge there to get a search warrant. Probable cause determination is made and then the search warrant is executed. You have to go to a court that has jurisdiction over the property and the property is Mar-a-Lago. That's why a Southern District Uh, court in Florida, uh, federal court was involved. And then why Eileen Cannon uh, asserted jurisdiction, no one really knows other than Eileen Cannon, because it was completely, she shouldn't have asserted jurisdiction. And we, we've talked about it here. We, she, uh, she's going to be overruled soon. There's an expedited appeal process challenging her overall jurisdiction after she was overruled regarding the top secret classified documents, which were returned to the department of justice, but she shouldn't be involved. But if there's a criminal indictment that will actually take place in Washington, DC. So Papa, tell us about the prosecutor, what's going on. What, what are some other yeah. updates here? Mar- yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Mar-a-Lago, you know, you and I have talked a lot about where is the jeopardy, criminal jeopardy greatest for Donald Trump. And I've taken the position on prior podcasts that I liked Fonnie Willis's chances, and it'll post midterm, to get, to get, um, it's the only place where we have physical evidence of Trump's involvement, right? The phone call was recorded that he made to Raffensperger in Georgia. But you've, you've been pretty consistent that if we're going to, if we're going to bet on one, that it would be the Mar-a-Lago prosecution. 
And to that point, it is a it is a great sign, as I said earlier, for democracy and our system of justice, and a terrible sign for Donald Trump that they've added David Raskin, who I don't believe is related to Jamie Raskin on the Jan 6 committee. Uh, David Raskin is a prosecutor's prosecutor. I mean, he's the Hall of Fame of Department of Justice prosecutors. He made his bones in the 9-11 terrorist attack and the prosecutions related to that, um, to the earlier attack on the World Trade Center. He is considered the terror, anti-terror prosecutor in America. Um, he has been added as, I assume, lead prosecutor for the Mar-a-Lago theft of uh, stolen government documents case against Donald Trump. That is great for us, terrible for him. The other turn of events that's been reported in the news along with, um, and, and, and just, just before I leave that point, we've talked about when prosecutors get added to cases and what it means for criminal defendants like Donald Trump before. And, we, and we've reported in prior podcasts about, for instance, prosecutors being added to lead what's going on in the District of Columbia with the multiple grand juries investigating ultimately Donald Trump and those around him related to Jan 6, related to the fake electors, related to the, the insurrection and the failure of Donald Trump to turn over the reins of power peacefully. There's prosecutors there that are career prosecutors adults in the room leading the charge. Now we've got David Raskin. We also know, and you've reported on this in some of your hot takes, Ben, that um, the personal valet, what's now known uh, inside the White House as the body man for the president, uh, Walt Nauta, uh, N-A-U-T-A, is apparently cooperating or maybe cooperating with the Department of Justice that's the guy or the woman's usually the guy who carries around like all the personal things for the president, kind of keeps him on his schedule. He's always next to the president. Um, he's got, you know, anything he needs. That's why he's known as, used to be the valet, but now it's known as the body, the body guy. He's, he is um, cooperating with the Department of Justice. Cash Patel, who is the primary liaison on the documents between Trump and the, and the National Archives, who has gone on record, although he's gone silent lately, about everything from Donald Trump as president had the ability to mentally declassify and just think about declassification and poof, the documents are declassified and other strange positions. He's gone into one of the grand juries, apparently taken the Fifth Amendment. That issue is going to go back before Chief Justice uh, Beryl Howell, who's going to make the decision about whether the Fifth Amendment was properly applied or not. In any event, it looks like the Department of Justice may be looking to immunize Cash Patel. Um, and again, we're back to the new prosecutor, David Raskin, helping to make that decision in order to get testimony out of him and have him drop the Fifth Amendment privilege and testify in return for immunity. So these are all really great things in the world of justice. In terms of the Mar-a-Lago um, people sometimes forget, while we've got the appeal going on, the full-blown appeal at the 11th Circuit, and the Supreme Court having backed out completely until the 11th Circuit rules on whether just, just Judge Cannon's decision to even set up the special master process was appropriate or not, which is going to be timed out in November, probably before Thanksgiving. Meantime, Ray Deary, the senior status judge who's the special master, 
continues with a deadline set by Judge Cannon of the middle of December to complete his review of 22,000 pages of documents. You know, 11,000 documents, 22,000 pages. He's like throwing his hands up and, 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 and telling everybody his hair is on fire about how he's going to get it done in time. And he wants the Department of Justice and the Trump lawyers to work together and, and try to resolve a lot of these issues. Already, at least 50 or 100 documents have been resolved. The attorney-client privilege has been dropped, and those documents have been expedited by, just, by Judge Deary directly to the investigators of the Department of Justice for their continued work on Mar-a-Lago. They're, right, they're, the, they're out of the cash, and they're sent over to Department of Justice. But now, the Department of Justice, while it continues to object to the whole process on appeal— is trying to work with the Trump uh, Trump lawyers to give guidance that they can agree upon to Deary. And where it looks like they've agreed and they've instructed the judge in a joint filing this last week is that, judge, if you can resolve these four or five issues, fundamentally, it will speed up your work. One issue from the filings, we can tell, is can a president assert executive privilege and claim that it is his personal property at the same time. Ben, I think the answer to that is no. However, it is an issue. And with the, they want the judge to make that ruling now to speed things up. Can it's a dumb issue. Assert, it's a dumb issue, it, but it's a they've, dumb jointly, issue. they've jointly asked the judge <laughs> to decide this joint issue. We know the answer. Because how the could answer. something be a personal record, meaning right. it is not an executive record, and then you're asserting executive privilege over it, and the Department of Justice has pointed out in its filings that Trump's privilege claims are completely spurious. They've explained you can't have a former person, president, and I want to call him that, steal records and then say that the current executive branch can't have its own executive records back. And then Trump claiming also that under the Presidential Records Act that certain records are now personal records. Um, the Department of Justice also says you don't even have jurisdiction for that. Like you can't steal the records and then right now claim they're personal the process by fiat, they say in the filing, yeah. the process yeah. for doing that, if you were to actually do that, is you give the records to the National Archives. And then if you believe that there may have been a mistake and there may be a few documents that they got that were personal that the archives had, we're not talking about top secret records like this has never happened before. But if you believe, OK, the, the archives, look, you, you have these notes. These notes are part of my book. And they're personal. And I know you're saying that they're um, actually records that are presidential records that the government keeps. Look, I, I need those records back. You go to the district court in Washington, D.C. is the only court that has jurisdiction over disputes like that. And the Department of Justice has pointed that out, Popak. So they're going to win well, on here, all of these. Here's another, they are. And here's another example. I thought it was interesting that Trump's lawyers agreed with the Department of Justice that if these five or six fundamental legal issues get resolved by the judge on briefing that's really already been done, then that will speed up his process and he will make his mid-December court ordered by Cannon deadline. One of them is also laughable. It's Trump continuing to claim that, that clemency and pardon applications and letters that went to him, he gets to keep now that he's not the president. How is that not a presidential record, an official record that has to stay with the National Archive as part of a legacy? I mean, it's very simple. 
50 years from now, historians and others should be able to go to a complete set of presidential records and know what happened in that time and not have to say, not have to see a blank spot in the file that says these were documents that were stolen by Donald Trump and not returned. That it you you know, you only stay in the office as a caretaker as president until the next president. And then, the, you know, that you're not citizen Trump when you're sitting there. You're the president of the United States. It's a title. And those documents, everything that's around you, except really personal stuff. Melania writes you a letter. And she doesn't mention policy <laughs> in that letter. Maybe Barron's school records. Personal. I get that. Anything that touches on his job. His job as an employee of the federal government, we've already established in prior podcasts, he's officially an employee of the federal government. He gets paid to do a job. All the things around him have to stay in the office and shipped to the National Archive upon his departure. He can't even keep copies. He's supposed to turn all of that over. So, look, I think this is a um, loaded, a loaded gun in favor of the Department of Justice. This is weighted in their favor. The answers to every one of these issues should should run in favor of the Department of Justice. And then what's going to happen is, assuming assuming the appellate court, the Eleventh Circuit, and maybe the Supremes again, if they deign to get involved, which I don't think they will, then you know, um, Adiri's going to do his job unless it, unless and until he's told by the Eleventh Circuit to stop. And so there could be a ruling in the 11th Circuit by early December that tells Deary, thank you for your service. You can stop doing your review now because we've eliminated your position <laughs> because there was no jurisdiction to ever do this. And all the documents that you're sitting on immediately need to go to the Department of Justice to further their investigations. I think that's what happens unless the timing of this doesn't cycle. He finishes his job. He determines that some are and some aren't, but the bulk of it goes to the Department of Justice. So look, by December, mid-December, one way or the other, the vast majority of these documents, either be from the proper judicious exercise of this process by Judge Deary or by the 11th Circuit, poof, getting rid of the entire special master process. These documents are going to the Department of Justice and now headed by a really high-powered, turbocharged prosecutor in Raskin. You know, Popak, if these issues really were just about, though, uh, Melania letters or clemency grants or, 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 or documents like that, would it be criminal for Trump to have stolen records if they were determined to be um, government records that didn't belong to him? Yes. And would it be criminal for him to obstruct investigation? Yes. But candidly, I'd probably be a little on the fence of, all right, do we want to exhaust our prosecutorial uh, power to prosecute a case like that, given the issues? That's not what we're talking about here, though. What we know already from reporting is that he took records that were at the highest level of classification, that there are probably still other documents out there. We know not there, there are still other documents that are missing. He took records about Iran's missile program, about Chinese military infrastructure, about nuclear secrets. He took information so that he could be transactional and extort our country and exploit and harm our country and then covered it up. And that to me is why you can't leave this 
not prosecuted, why you have to do something. And the fact that he is still engaged in obstruction uh, to this day is why you need to prosecute this individual. And the case based on all of the facts before us right now, what we know about the timeline from January 2021 when he leaves the White House to himself taking documents and cherry picking it for January 22 when he's caught with you know, ha having stolen these records to then submitting false declarations to the Department of Justice, to everything that happened before August 8th and even to the present, you have to prosecute him. And I genuinely think there, you know, they will. And I think also because y you take the you t there's no politics in it. You know, Trump will try to inject politics, but it's an easy case to the jury to say you stole records. Here are the records that you stole, and that here's the intent. It's easy to prove, and I think, and I think that's also why and, they're bringing and, in David, David. And, and the other thing that support, I agree with you. The other thing that supports your theory about look, we're we're both winners. I, if, if if he's indicted first or only on Mar-a-Lago, I'm happy with that. Um, and I think you know I've I've heard some other commentary about oh um, you know anybody else would already be arrested. They wouldn't. But but there are there is a long body of historical precedent, including like a month ago or two months ago, where if you steal top secret or classified documents or you forget to return them to your place of employment, whether you're an FBI agent, Sandy Berger, a, a former a then a former White House um, official for Clinton or or David Petraeus, who was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, a potential presidential candidate or otherwise and you mishandle classified information, you're going to have to take a charge either by plea arrangement or by jury conviction of, of uh, the, that particular crime. Raskin just got a guilty plea from this Kansas City FBI agent um, who for, who's 52, been with the agency for 13 years, highest level of classification. She had 386 classified documents in her house. And she got caught and she's facing 10 years related to that. Now, this is slightly different, but not that different. But we're talking about the president of the United States. I agree with you. I yep. don't know how they can they can avoid prosecuting him once all the shenanigans about these, quote unquote, defenses, which are silly at bottom, silly at bottom, are ripped away by a court of law, which is happening one by one, one by one. All of these paper soldiers that are in front of Donald Trump are falling by way of court rulings, even at the U.S. Supreme Court level. Agree with you there, Popak. A lot more to discuss in this episode of Legal AF. If you support independent media like this, go check us out at patreon.com slash Midas Touch. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Midas Touch. We are not funded by any outside investors at all. The both sides media who we compete with and the pro-fascism media out there has billionaire and deca-millionaire funders. We have zero outside investors. We are purely fueled by democracy and we are powered by you. And so go join one of our membership uh, programs and tiers at patreon.com slash Midas Touch. It would really go a long way to help. And speaking about us being powered by certain things, we are powered and we are fueled by Athletic Greens. You know I love AG1. Today's program is brought to you by Athletic Greens, the health 
and wellness company that makes comprehensive daily nutrition really simple. I really like AG1. With so many stressors in life, it's difficult to maintain effective nutritional habits and give our bodies the nutrients it needs to thrive. Busy schedules, poor sleep, exercise, the environment, work stress, or simply not eating enough of the right foods can leave us deficient in key nutritional areas. So what is AG1? AG1 by Athletic Greens is the category-leading superfood product that brings comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition to everybody, keeping up with the research, knowing what to do, and taking a bunch of pills and capsules is hard on the stomach and hard to keep up with. But to help each of us be our best, AG1 simplifies the path to better nutrition by giving you the one thing with all the best things. And so it's one tasty scoop of this green powder. You put it in your cup, you put water in, you shake it up, and it contains 75 vitamins, minerals, whole food sourced ingredients, including multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood blend and more in one convenient daily serving. And it's lifestyle friendly. So whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free, this is for you. It contains less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything. It is cheaper than your cold brew habit. Gives me a ton of energy. I think it tastes really, really good. So join the movement of athletes, lifeletes, and legal AFers who are taking AG1 one that is essential nutrition and to make it easy athletic greens is going to give you an immune supporting free one year supply of vitamin d and five free travel packs with your first purchase all you got to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash legal af that is athleticgreens.com slash l-e-g-a-l AF and take control of your health and give AG1 a try. You won't regret it. I really, really, really like AG1 and I drink it before the show, every show. Popak, let's talk about what's going on with uh, a lot of these insurrectionists trying to avoid <laughs> avoid testimony. I mean, like, like you know, they, and, and here's they the, were, what you're going to say. Yeah, go ahead. I, I was just going to say they they were all energetic and super excited. The Kelly Wards of the world, we're going to talk about Lindsey Graham of the world, all super excited to get involved with the insurrection and make phone calls and do fake elector certificates and hold meetings and berate people to try to get them to change the results of the election until they're called to account for it and provide evidence in a court or in a Jan 6 investigative body. What cowards. You know what? I would have more respect for you. <clears throat> I sort of have a little bit more respect for John Eastman, except for his fight over the emails. You know, if you're going to be an insurrectionist or you or you believe in the conviction of your position, that is OK. You want a podcast like Legal AF and do your thing from another perspective, like another alternate universe? You can have that, too. But stand up, man and woman and others. Stand up for your position. Go in. If you think it was right, then the, then then the truth will set you free. But if you don't. Then you do what you're about to tell our audience that these other people have done, yeah. which is what? Me? Huh? I got a privilege. I got immunity. I didn't really do that thing. You can't get my phone records. Stand up for yourself. Be a, be a person. Be courageous in the conviction of your position. I agree with you. That's so, look, <laughs> their programs, their podcasts, their fascist rallies are despicable. Um, but 
if they believe the things that they are saying when Kelly Ward goes on that stage during one of those fascist rallies and she goes, I'm a member of the orange <laughs> mafia who here is a member of, I mean, there's literally is a that, video. Is that her. exactly what she did? There's, okay. I, I'm going to have salty, I, I'm, salty. I'm going to have, have salty literally <laughs> put it in. of the orange mafia you know and it's embarrassing it's embarrassing (laughs) but but here's the thing if you believe those things then go into court don't take the fifth tell people how you feel you know even you go to the case that tish james the new york attorney general is uh the civil case that's at least seeking 250 million dollars in damages from trump you know, the questions that Trump pled the fifth to are not exactly uh, political landmines. I mean, it's what is the valuation of Trump Tower? What is the valuation of Bedminster? What is the valuation of Mar-a-Lago? What did you tell your lender that the valuation was? Was that truthful? Fifth, fifth, fifth. And then they go, it's a witch hunt. It's a witch hunt. They're coming after me. What's a witch hunt? They just literally asked you the most basic questions in the world. And if you're out there, you answer those questions. And so here you have, we'll talk about it. We have Kelly Ward. You got Lindsey Graham. You got uh, you got Mark, Mark Meadows. Meadows. Mark right. Meadows for a second was going part- to help the January 6th committee. I don't even know what his strategy was. He turned over 2,000 text messages in September of 2021 or right around then. And then right before his deposition in December of 2021, he filed a federal lawsuit to not have to testify before the January 6th committee. They got a uh, they, they voted that found him in contempt of Congress. But the case that Mark Meadows is now involved in is the Fulton County District Attorney investigation uh, before the special grand jury taking place there. I'll just go in reverse order because I'm talking yeah. about. Mark Meadows there. And so Fawny Willis has impaneled this special grand jury investigating criminal election interference with the 2020 election. She's called a number of witnesses. We've talked about it here uh, on the Legal AF podcast. And Giuliani's, you know, got in there and she talked to Brad Raffensperger. Um, This is also a proceeding which we'll talk about in a little bit, too, with Lindsey Graham is trying to desperately avoid uh, giving testimony there. But Kelly Leffler testified there, we know, and um, a number of other of uh, people in the former Trump administration testified there. She's very, Fawny Willis is focused on the fake elector slates. Some of these MAGA extremists tampered with voting machines after to try to prove their ridiculous conspiracy theories and like broke the chain of custody in these machines and they have to like buy new machines. You know, there's all these issues there and obviously the January 6th insurrection itself. But Mark Meadows, he apparently lives in South Carolina. I say apparently because he was like registered to vote in North Carolina and Washington, D.C., but he claims he lives in South Carolina. And so when you seek a out-of-state subpoena, you have to first go to your local judge um, where you are hold, where the criminal proceeding is taking place. You get permission from that judge. The local judge there is Robert McBurney, who's the judge overseeing the 
special grand jury in Fulton County. McBurney signs off on it. Then remember, we talked earlier about jurisdiction in the federal context. Remember that there's, we talked about how there's the criminal grand jury taking place in Washington, D.C., but you got to go to the magistrate judge in the Southern District who has jurisdiction over the Mar-a-Lago property. This is a state court thing, but it's very similar. So first you started in Fulton County, get permission there. Then you go to Pickens County, which is the county where uh, Meadows apparently lives. Meadows says, no, 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 you can't, get, I, I, I can't testify there. You know, what's going on in Fulton County, he argues, is not a criminal proceeding, it's a civil proceeding. And I made this executive privilege claim that I have a lawsuit being filed in DC. I don't want to testify. Please, 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 judge, don't let me go. And then his local judge said, look, I'm going to follow what McBurney said in Fulton <laughs> County. You're going to, you're going to show up there. And so Meadows has been ordered to testify before that grand jury. There's a bigger there's a bigger issue here that you and I talked about and touched on a couple of podcasts ago, which is this um, stratagem that people like Meadows are adopting, which is a page right literally out of Trump's playbook, just as he did, just as Trump did with the New York Attorney General claiming that her investigation was not civil, it's criminal, and therefore she didn't have jurisdiction and all this other stuff. The new the new attack that people like Meadows, like Sidney Powell, um, Eastman and others have tried is to claim that um, Fawnie Willis's special grand jury, which is criminal in nature, because Chief Justice, Mc Chief Judge McBurney, her boss in Fulton County, Georgia, says it is. And because a long line of procedural history in Georgia says that the special grand jury, even though it only makes a recommendation about a prosecution and an indictment, ultimately to the chief judge, McBurney, and is not an indicting entity in and of itself, doesn't render it civil in nature. It renders it criminal. It's, a, it's part of the criminal process in Georgia. Well, not to the state courts in Texas, because the state courts in Texas have bought hook, line, and sinker because they want to undermine Fawnie Willis's prosecution. They've bought the argument that it is civil in nature, and therefore they don't have to recognize her subpoena because her subpoena is, is moving along state lines under two concepts. One, the full faith and credit of the U.S. Constitution, which says basically that one state should recognize the rulings and the judgments of another state. And there's actually a statute, the Uniform Enforcement of Criminal Subpoena Statute, a body of law that was adopted by every state, which says that if a prosecutor from one state goes into a courtroom in a courthouse in another state, and it all meets the standards of the uniform code, the uniform statute, it will be recognized with very little rigmarole, very little a very little way of procedure. It'll be rubber stamped by that judge. Let me see it. Let me see. McBurney is asking me to recognize his subpoena, a chief judge and sitting in another state. Well, seems to meet the requirements of the criminal statute. Yes. And which is exactly what just happened in South Carolina with Meadows. But there are judges in Texas who have stuck it to Fawnie Willis and said, we don't recognize your grand jury. Your grand jury is civil in nature, or it's not a prosecutorial body. And we don't recognize that in Texas. And they've let off the hook so far. Sidney Powell has not been dragged kicking and screaming across the country to testify at the, at the Fawnie Willis Fulton County because she got a, a 
favorable Texas judge to 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 uh, thumb their nose at Fawny Willis and ultimately to uh, Georgia's criminal justice process. And it hasn't been taken up, although I I haven't, I or at least I haven't seen it, has not been taken up. So Meadows tries the same BS. He says to the, the Pickens County civil court judge, superior court judge, this is civil. He says, well, let me let me take a look at this. Uh, judge McBurney says it's criminal. So I think that issue is resolved. And then he, he talks in the Meadows says, well, I'm going to be harmed and it's too much of a prejudice on me. And he says, no, you're going to go testify. Good day. Now, Meadows can go to the Supreme Court or the next level appellate court in South Carolina, see what happens. He can also try to go to the Supreme Court of South Carolina. But I think for now, he's going to have to stay in the state system. He's made a choice not to do it by federal, the federal system, not run to the federal court there. And I think he's going to have to stay. There is a way to jump to the federal side through the U.S. Supreme Court. But I think he's dead. I think he's going to end up testifying to the the, um, Fulton County prosecutors. And that's going to be the end of it. And the other thing we always have we always have to remember with Mark Meadows is that the prosecutors have in their back pocket, at least the federal ones, a little bit of an open door to Mark Meadows, a glass house, if you will, because he may have committed and probably likely committed voter fraud. You know, so chief <laughs> chief of staff of a president who talked to, who talks about the 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 lack of integrity of an election himself committed voter fraud by voting and uh, voting in multiple places, including maybe in South Carolina, where I'm not even sure he actually lives. He said he lives in uh, South so Carolina have, now. He, he had a trailer in, there was a trailer North address Carolina. in North Carolina. North Carolina, where he was a congressman before he became uh, the chief right. of staff. So we have that. And now you, you want to move us over <laughs> yeah, to uh, yeah, Graham so, and Ward? So Kelly Ward, Lindsey Graham, different proceedings, but both have filed emergency applications to the Supreme Court to avoid giving testimony about January 6th. Kelly Ward is the ch- so ridiculous saying this. She's the chair of the Arizona Republican Party. She identifies herself as an ultra-MAGA ex- extremist. <laughs> That's how she identifies herself. The January 6th committee tried to get her T-Mobile phone records. First, they tried to get her testimony. Fifth, fifth, fifth. She pled the fifth. She's like, all right, we want to get your phone records. Um, and then she made an argument that under the First Amendment, because she's the chair of the Republican Party there, that it is like an infringement into her speech for her to have to show membership roles of political affiliation of a government entity, like the January 6th committee gets her record. She filed a lawsuit in Arizona District Court to try to stop the January 6th committee from getting the record. She lost there. Whether you analyzed it under a strict scrutiny or exacting scrutiny standard or a lesser kind of intermediate scrutiny standard, the, the district court and the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals said, regardless, there's a compelling need to get information about the insurrection here. And it's a narrowly tailored subpoena where these phone records are just the Who's calling? Who's receiving the calls? When the call take place? What's the duration of the calls? And it's about the insurrection and it's narrowly tailored. So the January 6th committee should have it. But Kelly Ward filed an emergency application in the Ninth Circuit. Emergency applications in the Ninth Circuit go to Elena Kagan, an Obama appointee. Elena Kagan, just for a temporary period pending the January 6th committee's review, granted an injunction or a stay um, of the subpoena of, of the January 6th committee enforcing the subpoena. There'll be full briefing there. I believe Kelly Ward is going to lose mm-hmm. there. 
You want to stay say right there, though. Yeah, stay right there because we want it. We're, there's no both sides in it on this show, as you as you like to say, and I like that phrase. And we and you know Justice Thomas and took a lot of flack because he issued an administrative stay until all the ducks got in a row with Lindsey Graham. We're going to talk about next, and we were up in arms about it, and you were up in arms. We about weren't. It. I was on the podcast a little bit. We 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 thought that Justice Thomas. Oh, here we go. He's already kind of benefiting Lindsey Graham with a stay. But a week later, Kagan did the exact same thing on behalf of Kelly Ward, and, we, and there's not a peep in the media about Kagan having doing it. Sometimes when important issues come up and and deposition testimony or testimony before a committee can be slightly delayed, it's okay that there's an administrative stay until there's full briefing, whether that full briefing goes ultimately and is reviewed ultimately by Thomas on the Graham side or by Kagan on the Ward side or goes to the full nine member uh, members of the Supreme Court is yet to be seen. I have a feeling both of these are going to go to the night to the full nine uh, for ruling. But I, I just just a little aside. Administrative stays shouldn't be overinterpreted as a already a thumb on the scale in favor of somebody like Lindsey Graham or Ward. It is an administrative temporary hold, pin in it, hold the ring for a short period of time administratively without being on the merits until there's an ultimate decision and a briefing schedule is set. And that, I just wanted to comment on that. Yeah. And to your point, you go to what Lindsey, Lindsey Graham, this is a subpoena by the Fulton County uh, District Attorney and the uh, special grand jury proceedings taking place there. Lindsey Graham's been trying to duck the first he tried to duck service of the subpoena and then he's you know filed appeals and then it went back to the district court then it went to the 11th circuit but eventually uh, both the 11th circuit court of appeals in a per curiam meaning a unanimous decision uh 3-0 and the district court judge the lower judge all said that lindsey graham should have to testify on certain categories if he exhorted cajoled or engaged in like undue pressure of state election officials to overturn their results. That's a category he needs to testify on. His communications with the Trump administration, he needs to testify on. And his PR and public relations statements, he needs to testify about that that is not covered by the constitutional speech and debate clause, which for le legitimate legislative activity under the uh, United States versus Gravel case, I think it's a 1972 case, and other case law regarding speech and debate clause, these are exceptions where it's not legitimate legislative activity for a South Carolina senator to go into Georgia and engage in those in that type of conduct. And he could be questioned on those categories. He can't be questioned on legitimate legislative activity. Fairly simple. Lindsey Graham uh, appeals or files this emergency applications with the United States Supreme Court. And, uh, you know, interestingly, both in the Lindsey Graham uh, emergency application and the Kelly Ward emergency application, you have the January 6th committee with Ward and the uh, Fulton County DA with Graham, you know, both basically telling the Supreme Court, if you grant their emergency application to stay pending the appeal, which both uh, courts of appeal have already found does not have a probability of success on the merits, if we have to go through that process, for all purposes, we're not going to get that testimony at this point because of the timeliness of which our investigations need to take place. And so if anyone's going to have irreparable harm, it would be us, the January 6th committee, or us, the district attorney's office, not 
these insurrectionists or people who aided and abetted the insurrection when we're just trying to find information about what transpired on that date that will live in infamy. So we will see next week, but we will probably hear responses from both um, uh, Thomas and from Elena Kagan after the issues are fully briefed. And we will keep you updated with that on the next Legal AF. Popak, want to go into, let's go into this sentencing and conviction updates. Two cases, um, both before Judge Amy Berman Jackson, who I think is a complete rock star of a uh, federal judge, you know, she's made clear in her uh, sentencing how disgraceful the insurrectionists are. She's generally found uh, at the top of the sentencing guidelines when she's sentenced these insurrectionists. And we're going to talk about one right now, someone by the name of Albuquerque Head, who's from Tennessee, who went to the January 6th insurrection, participated in it, attacked Officer Michael Fanone, the Metropolitan Police Department officer, said, I got one, brought him out while other insurrectionists tased and punched and uh, pepper sprayed him. You, you know what, wait, wait, you know what was even worse about that? <clears throat> the way he got close to Fanone is that he put his arms around him and he said to him, I'm going to get you out of here. And Fanone said, thank you. And then he squeezed him around the neck and and because he tricked Fanon into letting down his guard. And, and squeezing his neck, he then yelled, I got one. It's disgusting. And Albuquerque Head, who was sentenced there. And then you had a criminal trial of a ex-Capitol Police officer by the name of Michael Riley, who had friended somebody on Facebook, an, an insurrectionist on Facebook, days before the insurrection. They were both apparently hunters or outdoor sports persons. And then when this Capitol Police officer saw this insurrectionist, not at the insurrection, but after the insurrection, post things about being at the insurrection, Michael Riley just said, you know what, I've been a Capitol Police officer for 26 years, but uh, screw it. I'm going to, you know, we, you know, the reality is, is that if this is how his thinking is, just think about what he must have been doing for those 26 years. Um, but he reached out to this individual who was in the insurrection and said, take that post down. And then later deleted his text messages with the person um, or his DMs with the person. And he was charged with uh, obstruction on both two counts, first for the initial outreach saying, take it down. And then the second obstruction count, which he was ultimately convicted of the second obstruction count for a few weeks later, deleting all of those communications uh, with that individual who the insurrectionist, and the insurrectionist ended up getting a misdemeanor and the cop ended up being, or the ex-cop who disgraced his badge and disgraced this country and is a traitor, let's just call it what it is and not mince words here, um, will likely be facing a sentence of at least 20 months and with sentencing enhancements probably. Uh, significantly more time uh, than that. But Amy Berman Jackson, no nonsense. And at the sentencing, she's been looking at these insurrectionists and saying, you're a disgrace, you're a traitor. And then she's been having these messages to other insurrectionists and frankly to Trump, who she hasn't called by name, but has said, you know, and there are still people who are in powerful people peddling the big lie, who should be ashamed of themselves, who are disgraceful and who are harming and trying to destroy our democracy. And then she sentences these insurrectionists to stiff sentences. What else do you want to talk about, Popak, with these sentencing in these cases? 
Yeah, no, I think that um, what I like about Amy Berman Jackson, and we've mentioned her probably almost a dozen times on various Legal AF podcasts, is that she is speaking to multiple audiences and is um, aware of the historical uh, precedent that she is setting. She speaks not only to the victim, this case, Metropolitan Police Officer Michael Fanon, now a CNN commentator who suffered a heart attack when he was brutally attacked by people like Albuquerque Head and others. She's speaking to the um, participants in the dark days of tyranny, to use a paraphrase of her words, which includes Donald Trump and Kelly Ward and everybody else who wouldn't recognize the uh, free and fair election of Joe Biden as if we lived in some sort of banana republic. And also, at so the very end, um, aided and abetted Donald Trump's clinging to power. So that's an audience. The defendants, um, the literal defendants, who she's sentencing, of course, are an audience. But but others are an audience. History is an audience. I think Amy Berman Jackson, more than any other of the uh, judges and justices, will be the most cited and quoted just, justice by historians, by people who who 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 100 years from now, when we're long gone, and two other people are sitting in Legal AF podcast chairs, when we're long gone, and people are successors to the mantle of democracy, try to figure out what happened? Why did this president do that? Why was there an insurrection? Why was there a siege on our capital by people that claim to be patriotic Americans? How did it all happen? And how do we avoid it ever happening again? A time capsule speaking to the future? That's Amy Berman Jackson. And she will be the way that you and I in law school and otherwise often quote, not just justices of the Supreme Court, but judges like Learned Hand. No better name for a judge ever than Learned Hand. Look them up. <laughs> but there there are things in my daily practice that I still quote from just judges like this who who had the opportunity and didn't miss it, right? Have have a moment in history to themselves and have decided I could write a short little sentencing order. I don't have to say what I'm about to say to, to all of these multiple audiences and speak to the future, but I'm going to because I have an obligation to democracy. I have an obligation to the Constitution that I've been sworn to uphold on my end of, this, of the three co-equal branches of gov government, the judiciary. That's who she's speaking to. And that is what's most powerful to me because I think about what our grandchildren, great-grandchildren and great-grandchildren and historians are going to look back at this isn't going to be two pages in some history book. I mean, not if the Democrats have an ability to help write history. The the victor writes history. The 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 defenders of democracy write the history books and the textbooks, and that's who she's speaking to, and that's why I always sit back in my chair and I listen closely to every word that somebody yeah. like Amy Berman Jackson says. Yep. You know, and so Albuquerque had that individual who did the horrific and despicable things that you uh, eloquently recounted, uh, sentenced to 90 months, uh, which is one of the stiffer sentences that have been handed out, um, which I am 
you know, there is justice being served there with that sentence. Um, and then you had that other case that I just want to talk about briefly too, the officer case, uh, ex-officer Michael Riley. And Popa, can you break that down a little bit, what took place there? Yeah. And I, one last thing on Amy Berman Jackson. She also says something that, that left me with a kind of um, a choking in my throat and a tear in my eye. She she recognized that that defendant's family, mainly women, including a fiance who was a mother of his children, pled for mercy. And she only shaved off, the judge only shaved off four months from the Department of Justice's sentencing recommendation. She made it 90 months, second highest, actually the second highest um, that's ever been sentenced for a Gen 6 insurrectionist. And she looked everybody in the eye, including recognizing with empathy the fiance, and said, you know who suffers here? It is the women that suffer. There were some women insurrectionists, no doubt. Kelly Ward, yep. one of them. There were some people on Gen 6 who laid siege to the Capitol there were women. But by and large, it's men. And by and large, it, it is the women left behind in their wake for this yep. fool's folly following Donald Trump, this unpatriotic insurrectionist activity. And it's the women that suffer. And that was very poignant for me. On the Riley sentencing, um, look, I, it, it was complicated. Yep. Yeah, it was it was complicated because he did two things to obstruct. He not only gave a heads up, and I believe if I remember the reporting correctly, he met this insurrectionist on Jan 6th while he was inside the building. He didn't know him before. So it wasn't like after the fact or he knew this guy. He took a liking. He took a shine to this guy while he was in there and then got his He met him on Facebook, Facebook before. He met him yeah. on Facebook he met, oh, he before did? the All insurrection. Right. Before he was going to go. Right. He didn't know and, he was going to the insurrection. So he met right. him before. Okay. So he Good. met him on Good. Facebook just randomly. He saw that there was all a right. person on Facebook who was a hunter, who had okay. similar uh, interests. You're right. I and, heard you say who that. was and who and who could have been who may have been yeah. going to DC on that day. And so they friended each other. And then uh, Michael Riley was actually one of the people who, when he was an officer, who responded to the pipe bombs yeah, at yeah. the Republican National He's a Committee. He was and the, Yeah, and the Democratic National Committee. And then after, just after the insurrection, he sees on Facebook, because he's following this person, that that yeah. person went there and was Posted bragging photos. about and was posting photos about it. And, and, and so it was just, hey, take yeah. those photos down. And when he well, said take the photos down, that took place on January 7th. The grand jury investigating the crimes was impaneled on January 8th. And so what the Department of Justice argued in the criminal prosecution is because Riley was a Capitol Police officer, he should have known that a grand jury was about to be impaneled and that he would be obstructing a future grand jury. And the technicality that hung that one juror in 11 to 1 was Riley's lawyer arguing there's there's some doubt that he actually knew that there would be a grand jury the next day there. But once the grand jury was impaneled and Riley then deleted his communications with this insurrectionist three weeks later, that was the second count of and, obstruction where the grand one jury more thing was he did. One more thing he did three weeks later. He he yes, it's always the cover up. It's it's always Martha Stewart exactly. went to jail for the cover up, not the crime. He did one more thing, and he did something else active. He sent a bullshit uh, direct message three weeks after the grand jury to this guy and said, 
Oh, I just saw a video of you smoking pot in the Capitol. What a bonehead. Oh, I can't believe anything that you said. So he planted a fake text or di direct message after that insurrectionist told him that the FBI had been speaking to the insurrectionist and was very interested in learning more about his communications with Riley and that he had his, the Department of Justice had gotten a copy of his phone and had donated, donated, uh, downloaded everything. Riley, of course, shit the bed. That's a, that's a legal term. He, legal term. Uh, he crapped, legal term, he crapped himself. That's, that's, and and that's then, called an STB, an STB. <laughs> STB. And he sent a, this phony fake cover up, you know, because he's uh, the law of holes, as you like to say, he's already dug this hole and now he's continuing to dig. That's what got him. And that'll send him to jail for, I don't know how much. And this added on cherry on top, whether they are going to retry him for the other one. I doubt it. I think that he's, he's going to get whatever he's going to get many, many months in jail for being a corrupt cop, which is even worse. I mean, yes, they'll cite to his record of whatever. Now I want to make one other point before we leave this entire sentencing thing. It is not our position. I'm talking to the, the world out there. It is not our position that people that are that serve in government or serve in law enforcement or secret service even have to be of the same political party or any political party in order to have their job. It's okay that Michael Riley was a Republican. It's okay that he sided with Trump in his heart and his mind. It's not okay that he deleted evidence and that he obstructed justice. That's the part that's not okay. And that is the distinction. We're not our end of the spectrum is not weaponizing the Department of Justice. We're just holding people accountable for things that go beyond freedom of speech, First Amendment right, freedom of association, and being able to support your party of your choice. It's okay that Secret Service didn't don't like Joe Biden. It's not okay that they don't do their job as a result of it. And that's Couldn't why agree. they need to be they need to be apolitical on the job. And when a when a tragedy happens like like Jan 6. They, I don't care what they do when they're off time, as long as it doesn't affect the job that they've been sworn to do, which is all that you and I have been talking about on these podcasts. You know, one other thing to mention too, you know, people have uh, asked, well, is he still going to get his pension? And, and generally the answer would be no. Uh, pension benefits <laughs> no. are forfeited for members who are convicted of a felony relating to their service as an employee. So, um, I saw a lot of, I did a hot take on, on this one on, on YouTube and people were saying, but he's got to get no pension. He's not going to get his pension after he's convicted I of- agree, uh, I agree with you. And I've been involved with cop pension cases when I did a municipal practice and they almost always, as you outlined it, lose their pension as a result of this. And they should. And that, and that disgorged money um, of lost pension maybe goes to a victim compensation fund, which is where it should go if, if that's possible. And certainly, you know, um, and the same thing for all of these people. There, you know, Fanon said it the best um, because he's very eloquent on what happened to him, which is important to history, that somebody can talk about it with the conviction of having lived as a victim like Michael Fanon. And I give him a lot of credit for that, having suffered that heart attack. He said to Judge Amy Berman Jackson before sentencing, I want you to show him the same mercy that he showed me. None. And you know what? I know there's a whole body of religion and other morality about turning the other cheek. But Michael Fanon speaks volumes about, about it from a victimization standpoint. And I'm glad he survived. And I'm glad he's taking the position that he's taken. 
Strong words by Michael Fanone. Strong <laughs> words to end this episode of Legal AF. The wheels of justice are turning. We appreciate each and every one of you Legal AFers for watching. Here's what I ask you to do as well for our YouTube audience. Please subscribe on audio as well. Wherever you get your audio podcast, go right now, hit the subscribe button on audio and take a listen when you're going for a walk or when you're in the car or whatever it is that you're doing. Take a listen on audio podcast as well. It helps with the audio algorithm. And for our audio listeners, go and subscribe to the Midas Touch Network YouTube channel. You will love our video podcasts as well as our uh, breaking news hot takes. Also, check us out at patreon.com slash Midas Touch. Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Midas Touch. We are not funded by billionaires or millionaires. We have zero outside investors. This independent media network is 100% independent. Thanks to you. So please, if you can help out, your generosity goes a long way. Support us there at patreon.com slash Midas Touch. Check out Legal AF Gear at store.midastouch.com. We've got the Wheels of Justice long sleeve shirts and also Convict and Convict 45 shirts. We've got a, n- a number of other great merch at store.midastouch.com. Check us out there. And Michael Popak and I are practicing lawyers. If there is a legal case, the types of cases that we handle um, are, you know, where the damages are really, really, really significant. So the types of cases I handle are catastrophic personal injury uh, cases I handle. I handle uh, cases involving victims of sexual assault and sexual harassment, usually when it happens at the workplace uh, against corporations. Those are the types of cases that I work on. Michael Popak handles lots of high-level business cases and business disputes and high-level contract disputes where there's a large amount of damages at stake. Um, We still want to try to help out however we can, but those are the type of cases we we work at law firms, so we have to uh, do sometimes what the what, what that is. But um, we're happy to try to help however we can. Michael Popak's email is mpopak m p o p o k at zpay at zplaw.com. That's m p o p o k at zplaw.com. And I'm Ben at midastouch.com. Ben at midastouch.com. Always a pleasure, Michael. Spending this weekend with you talking about the most consequential legal news of the week. And I want to thank all of the legal efforts, all of the Midas Mighty. As we approach the elections, it is so important after watching, after listening to this, that you now go and turn this knowledge into action. And so please, 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 Make sure you tell people to vote. Vote early where you can vote early. Um, make sure everybody in your family who's eligible to vote ha- is is voting blue. Make sure everybody you know who can vote blue votes blue. You could be the difference. With the audience that we have, with approximately 150 to 250,000 people who watch this. By the way, more people watch and listen to this 
than many CNN broadcasts and other <laughs> mainstream media broadcasts. And so you, this community though, has the power to actually change the results of an election, to be the difference maker by going out right now and by being the change itself and by getting people to vote, vote, vote right now. You could be the difference. So I want to leave you with that. Popak, any final words before I close this out? No, it's the one that I always use with you when you when you, when you you give that um, great instruction. Democracy is a contact sport. It's not, it's not for something on the sidelines. Get in there and make those contacts. We, you and I got, a, got a, a, a beautiful email from one of our listeners and followers telling us about what she and her children are doing for democracy in doing some mailings and some mailers related to um, some candidates and other things. And that's it. It's a contact sport. I don't mean violent contact. I mean physical contact. Your neighbors, uh, door ringing, door, door hangers, registration for voting. We're kind of beyond that now, making sure people get out to vote. As I've always said, it's not about it's not about just your own vote. It's about making sure that five or 10 of your like-minded people get out and vote as well so that you multiply a trampoline effect about voting is really, really important. One of the reasons I think that uh, that Hillary Clinton didn't win is because you know people voted for her but didn't do anything to get others to vote for her for the various reasons of her candidacy. Can't let that happen again. Get five or 10 other people to get to the polls or if they've already mailed in, mail in, and then you're gonna like the results. And, and otherwise, you'll be kicking yourself that you didn't do more if it, if it becomes a very close midterm election. Couldn't agree more. Thank you, Michael Popak. Thank you to all who are watching and listening. We will see you midweek and uh, next weekend here on Legal AF. Shout out to the Midas Mighty.